Welcome to PwC's accounting podcast series. I'm Heather Horn. You may notice a difference with this week's episodes. Right before the stay-at-home orders went into place, I had PwC partner Matt Sabatini join me in the studio to discuss one of his favorite topics, the equity method of accounting. And in fact, we had so much material that we couldn't decide what to leave on the cutting room floor and instead decided to split it into two episodes. So we're kicking things off today with some of the equity accounting basics, and we'll be back on Thursday with additional considerations. And for those listeners that have been anticipating our new positivity question to wrap up the podcast, don't worry, I reached out to Matt and I'll be sharing some fun insight. And with that, let's get started. So Matt, thanks for joining me in the studio today. Looking forward to talking about a topic that impacts most companies in some way, shape, or form, and that's equity method of accounting. But before we jump into too much detail, can you just level set for our audience and maybe talk a little about the scope and high level on the basic model? Absolutely. And it's good to be here. Um, So equity method of accounting in its essence, it's a way for an investor to measure its investment in common stock or other similar investments by recognizing its share of the economic resources underlying that investment. So that's like the basic model and the principle overlying the equity method. The basics of the corporate model, which I'm really going to get into right now, are um, if you have an investment in common stock or a similar instrument to common stock, and you have significant influence over the operating and financial policies of the investee, then you're subject to the scope of the equity method. All right. So that's the corporate model. And I want to be be sure that I I point that out because for partnerships, it works a little bit different and we'll get there in in a minute. So the basic model, right, once you decide you're in the scope of equity method accounting is you recognize your proportionate share of the underlying investee's income. So if you own a 25% interest in an investee, Typically, you're going to pick up 25% of that investee's income during that period. Again, that's the basic model. We'll get into some some more details about where that might differ. So if we're talking about the scoping for partnerships, it's going to work a little bit differently. right? So there's rules in the codification, but there's also some guidance from the SEC around how to deal with partnership interests. And it's, it's a different level of influence that you're looking for. So for partnerships, it's if you have virtually no influence, then you're outside of the equity method. Right? So it's a lower threshold to be in equity method for a partnership interest than it is for corporate interest. Um, what do we mean by... Yeah. Can I? Sorry, can you just clarify? So when you say it's a lower threshold, you're saying that you could... Can you clarify that? Sure. So it, for a corporate entity, what we're really looking for is a level of influence to be significant in order to be in the equity method. For a partnership, it kind of works the opposite way. And if you have virtually no influence, then you're not using the equity method. So it's almost like for a partnership, what your point is, you're more apt to be in it because unless you have almost no influence, you're going to apply the equity method. Yes, you got it. Okay. So then Matt, you just talked about scope, big picture. And I think we're going to mostly focus then on questions related to corporates as, as we keep going. Anything else on the model before we get into some of the specifics or anything else on scope? 
Yeah, I mean, a, a couple of other elements in the scope. I mean, I th- uh, there are a few types of investments that are strictly outside of the scope of equity method. Um, those would be if you're accounting for that investment as a derivative under ASC 815. If you're accounting for your investment under ASC 810 consolidation, which is an, uh, a fair point, because if you're consolidating the entity in which you have an investment, yes. you're not going to be applying the equity method. Yes. You're going to consolidate. Um, also, investments that are held by investment companies who apply um, ASC topic 946 are generally going to account for their investment investments at fair value. Um, in limited circumstances, they may apply the equity method, but for the most part, outside of the scope. Okay. Right. And I, and I think there's um, one other interesting um, option that, that all companies have, um, if they have an equity investment in a, an investee, is that they can elect to use the fair value option. So even though you might be in the scope, technically, of equity method, where you have significant influence in a common stock investment, you can always elect to record that at fair value and to mark to market every reporting period. That's a one-time election, generally at the date you acquire. It's also irrevocable. Right. So if you get one chance to get it right in terms of what you want on that. Um, So then maybe before we go on, can you just give the sort of baseline of starting from zero up to 100% interest in a company, the general models I would follow when I'm dealing with a corporate, not a partnership? Sure. And there are as always, no bright lines. Yes, um, exactly. That's why I said general. <laughs> and, we'll, and we'll get into a little bit more detail about where the presumptions exist. But generally, from zero to 20% um, in a corporate interest, you're going to be below the threshold for having significant influence. So you generally wouldn't apply equity method. Um, from 20% through, you want to say 50%, we can say Ish. that. Yeah. Ish. Um, <laughs> would generally be the sweet spot for equity method where you do have significant influence. Um, and above 50% is generally, again, where you end up um, with... Um, control and end up with consolidation. All subject to the caveat of facts and circumstances obviously dictate. Exactly. But it's a good starting point. And we'll get a little more into what we mean about significant influence later in, in the podcast. Okay, good. So then anything else that we should touch on from sort of the basic model or the scope before we go back to a, a question I had from something you said at the very beginning? <laughs> the only other thing I would, I would uh, point out is when I described the basic model earlier, I said you would pick up your proportionate share of the investee's earnings. It also applies to OCI elements. So you're also looking for changes in the investee's equity or capital accounts, and you're going to pick up your proportionate share of those as well. So that can include AFS securities, um, hedging, pension-related items or FX that are in the investee. You're going to have to make an adjustment in your investment as well, generally through equity and not through your P&L. Yes. And I actually know from personal experience from dealing with one of my clients that it's always good to see if anything's changed on that side because it's easy to miss that if they, they have not previously had those types of items. That's right. Yes. Okay. Very good. So why don't we go on to something you said at the very beginning, which is you mentioned common stock and in substance common stock. And I know that's something that can get complicated and people often have questions about. Well, maybe common stock itself is not so complicated, but the in substance part. So starting with common stock, can you explain what that is and then move on to in substance common stock? Sure. Yeah. No, common stock is generally straightforward. I I feel like people know it when they have it or see it. Yes. (laughs) Um, So it's a security that represents an ownership interest in an entity. It's generally the most residual interest in that entity and typically comes with voting rights, dividend rights, uh, and the ability to participate um, pro rata in, in ownership interests. Right. So that's common stock. In substance, common stock, um, it's not a legal term, right? It's a, it's, it's a term that was defined by the FASB. Um, it's generally meant to include instruments that have risk and reward characteristics that are substantially similar to common stock. Okay. 
So how do I know if what I'm holding has terms that are substantially similar to common stock? There's three three criteria that you could look at, and then there's a fail-safe method at the end, which we'll get to. Um, so the first criteria is subordination. When you're thinking about subordination, you're thinking about does the instrument that you hold have a substantive liquidation preference? And what I mean by substantive liquidation preference is you look at um, its rights in a liquidation and whether or not they differ from what a common stockholder's rights would be. So you typically see that where you have a stated liquidation preference, like in a preferred share. Um, and that is substantive when the price that you paid for the security is set at something similar to the liquidation price. Um, so it's not a uh, $1 liquidation price when I paid 1000 for the security. That would be non-substantive. Um, the other thing you would look at is whether or not there is a um, tranche of subordinated securities, like common stock, that are below you, your investment in the um, capital structure or in the waterfall. So if there's a significant tranche of common stock, that means that your liquidation preference really does protect you in the in the case of a liquidation where you're going to get it paid out first and the common stockholders will get paid out only after you. So that's what we look for for subordination. Number two is risk and rewards of ownership. So you're looking for an instrument in order for it to be in substance common stock to have a similar risk and reward profile. Um, that means you know if it participates in dividends, if it has conversion rights that are not severely restricted, um, if it has you know one one thing we we often see is like a deep in the money conversion feature. So if you see an instrument, or if you're holding an instrument like a penny warrant then you know that your risk and rewards of ownership are substantially similar to common stock because you only have to pay a cent to exercise into that common stock. Um, so that's what you're looking for, number two. And then the number three is the obligation to transfer value. So when you're a common stockholder, the, the company, the investee, doesn't have any obligation to transfer value to you. It only transfers value to you if it pays dividends or generates income. Mm -hmm. If you own a redeemable preferred share, for example, you have a a redemption right to, to be able to force the company to transfer value to you that the common shareholders aren't entitled to. So that's the kind of uh, feature that you're looking for in, in number three. Those, those three characteristics, what's, what's interesting is if any one of those characteristics indicate that what you're holding, your instrument, is not substantially some of the common stock, then you're not in the equity method. Oh, so then you're done. Then you move not. on to a new model. Right. So you need to meet all three in order to be in substance common stock. So it's a high threshold to get there. And what it leads to is, you know, a lot of cases where you're holding preferred shares, it's not going to get you into the equity method. Right. So then I'm assuming this is a topic for different podcasts, but what if you don't have in substance common stock and you have these other types of shares, what are the general models that people are following then? Right. So it depends on the instrument or the investment that you're holding. Um, but if you're holding some kind of preferred investment, typically you're going to be in uh, ASC 321, which is what used to be called the cost method, which is no longer yes. called the cost method, right? <laughs> um, so, so typically you'll be in, in there. You know, you could be holding an instrument like a warrant or an option, which could be subject to ASC 815 derivatives, right. like we said, or again, could be subject to ASC uh, 321. Um, you could have a convertible debt security that you ran through this model, um, which you know you might end up oh, in debt. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. so lots of complexity once you get past this. Exactly. And then you mentioned when you're looking at risks and rewards of ownership, sort of the tranches, and that you could have common stock below you. What if you have two types of common stocks? So there's you know Class A and Class B shares. Do you say, oh, well, it's called common stock, so I'm automatically common, or I need to run it through this model to say, is it in substance common stock? Yeah. I mean, typically, 
I would run it through the model if I saw two classes, only to understand what the, the different uh, terms and conditions are in mm-hmm. each class of common stock. Generally, if it's labeled common stock and you have a class A and class B, you're not going to see one of them have a liquidation preference over another or any substantive rights or privileges that are different than the other class if it's called common stock. Yeah. So you might be okay. Right. And still- I guess it depends, because, and we're going to get to significant influence because Sometimes you see with two types of common stock, they have different voting rights. And so that could go to significant influence, right? Absolutely. Which we're about to get to. So okay. that's a good lead in. And then you clarified this, but I just want to double clarify. If you are holding something that's called preferred stock, you run it through the model and, and then you follow that. But you don't say, oh, I have stock in this company. I'm going to follow the equity map. That's right. You should yeah. definitely run it through the model first to decide whether or not it's in substance common stock. Yeah. That'll dictate yeah. where you end up. I also mentioned there's a fail safe after these three criteria. So yes. for some reason, these three criteria aren't enough. Um, to help you figure out if what you're holding is in substance common stock. The other thing you can look at is the correlation in terms of the um, the way the value of your instrument would change um, a relative yeah, to the, the common stock. So if you have an instrument that changes in value or highly correlated to changes in value of the common stock, that might be one way to indicate, yeah, then. That it is in substance. You got yeah. It. And it's interesting because I know we're going to talk about misconceptions, but I feel like this area about in substance common stock is maybe a less known part of the equity method that I feel like people often can miss. So it's I'm glad to reiterate these reminders. Yeah, that's why I wanted to start with, with diving yes. deep in here because you're right. I mean, a lot of times when we have conversations with clients or, or audit teams, it's jumping right into whether or not I have significant influence. And maybe we should take a step back and say, well, what instrument are you holding? Right. And are you even subject to the scope of equity method? Exactly. So, okay. So then with that, why don't we move into significant influence? And obviously you gave us that general framework at the beginning with the caveats that there's no bright lines and it really comes down to you apply equity method if you have significant influence. So how do I figure that out? (laughs) So um, with with a great amount of judgment and subjectivity. Of course. (laughs) We're talking about accounting and that's why it's on the podcast. That's right. So you know the the way the way I think about it is if you if you have an investment that's twenty percent or more of the voting common stock or in substance common stock, then it leads to a presumption that in the absence of predominant evidence to the contrary, you are subject to the equity method in, in that you have significant influence. So said again, greater than 20% of the voting shares, there's a strong presumption, right? You need predominant contrary evidence to get yourself out of equity method. Okay. Okay. So, so you have to show you're not in it if you have over 20%. Yes. Okay. And what I'd say is the hurdle to show that you're not in it is probably high. Okay. Um, flip that around. And now if we're under 20% of the voting shares of the investee, there's a presumption that we don't have significant influence unless we can demonstrate for some other reason that we do. Um, I feel like that presumption is not as hard to get over okay. as, as the other. Does that make sense so far? It does. Keep going. Right. So we're going to start with the under 20% ownership of voting shares because I think that's a little bit um, a little bit easier, again, to demonstrate there might be circumstances where you actually do have significant influence, even though you're below 20. One of, one of the ways in which that um, manifests itself is through representation on the board of directors. So if you have um, 
one out of five board seats, which actually equals twenty percent yes. of the total board <laughs> seats. Um, that's you know one one way to demonstrate you have the ability to uh, exert significant influence. And in fact, that's a pretty strong way. Right, but if you have one out of twenty, maybe not so much. Yeah, I mean, I think we're always going to look at representation on the board of directors to understand how much influence that gives mm -hmm. you in the room, right? So whether it's one out of five, one out of twenty, we're going to look at it. Obviously, one out of five is yes. you have a lot more influence in right. a smaller table than a bigger table. Yes. Um, you know, one other thing we're going to look at is even even if you have board observer rights, I think you're going to want to understand what that means and what that entitles you to. Mm -hmm. Are you actively involved in the discussions? Are you helping to prepare the agenda? Do you have a strong say in an advisory role to how the board is operating the company? Or are you truly just an observer? And I think that would go a long way in helping you figure out uh, where you stand. Um, participation in policymaking is, is another thing we would look to. Um, comes up in certain industries where you might have a seat at the table on one of the committees. Mm -hmm. um, so there might be like a research and development committee or a marketing committee um, where you might have significant influence over that element of right. operations. And depending on how important that element is, it may that give you significant drive. influence over the company. Okay. Yeah, you got it. Um, there are a lot of cases where we see significant inter or intra entity transactions. So, investor sells a significant amount of goods to the investee, or vice versa. And if that um, if that strikes like a dependency or creates a significant amount of revenue or costs that are um, related to those intra entity transactions, that might be indicative of significant influence. Um, so, does that go to then to and? Um, to other relationships, like if there's loans and things like that, or it depends. I mean, everything depends. But yeah, no, absolutely. That's a good point. What well, one of the things that we would look to is you might have 15% of the voting shares, but you might have a significant amount of financial involvement well beyond that through other instruments, right? Loans, okay. preferred stock, um, and you're going to want to look at the totality of your relationship with the investee. You're not just going to look at your voting rights. Yeah, and I guess going back to the totality of the relationship. Um, that also goes then to if you hold indirect interest. So let's say you hold some directly and your subsidiary holds some, you're going to look at that together, right? When you're um, deciding what shares you hold and whether you have significant influence. Absolutely. Yep. You're always going to look at your direct interests and you're going to look at your indirect interests um, as long as they vote. Yep. Um, you're going to you're going to look at that. But even beyond that, if you have a a small um, a small direct interest that votes at let's say ten percent, um, and some indirect interests that maybe you don't even vote but are you know expose you to a significant amount of economics, it's all going to weigh in. Okay. In terms of when you're below twenty percent, you're trying to demonstrate the ability to exert significant influence. Would be um, frequently we see. Uh, an interchange of managerial personnel between the investor and the investee. So where the CEO or CFO of the investor also happens to have a manager role or a director role down at the investee level, that's going to be a strong indicator that, that you have significant influence over the investee's policies. Okay. One other thing I would look to is the um, extent of ownership in the investor uh, in relation to the concentration of other shareholders. So if you have a situation where you hold le less than 20%, um, but the largest other shareholder is 1%, that might be indicative that you do have significant influence, particularly relative to the other shareholders of that company. Oh, because you're saying because all the other shares are so distributed among other people, then it gives you just almost disproportionate interest. Exactly. Yeah. Because I was actually more thinking of the case if you were 15% and they were 85%, right. then that's maybe you have less it obviously less influence. Absolutely. Yeah. So it works both ways. Right. Um, neither is indicative on its own, but it's certainly something to think about both ways. Absolutely. Okay. So 
flipping that around, right? There are situations clearly where you're going to be over 20% of the voting stock. Um, and if you're trying to overcome the presu- presumption of significant influence with over 20%, again, you're going to need to show predominant evidence to the contrary. Um, what are some ways that you might do? Yes. <laughs> so some ways uh, include, you know, active opposition by the investee, either through legal means, through a regulatory body or a government agency um, that demonstrates that the investee is fighting your ability to exert that influence. Um, that's one way. Um, another way might be an actual legal agreement that you've signed with the investee. Uh, one example is a standstill agreement. A lot of times where an investor and investee sign um, a legal agreement, it, it limits the rights of the investor contractually. Um, so if you have something like that in place where you don't have the ability to attend board meetings, you don't have the ability to kind of vote your shares the way you ordinarily would, that, that would be a, uh, a helpful fact in overcoming the presumption. Um, one of the ones you mentioned uh, earlier is a majority of concentration in shareholders, right? So if you have 22% and the, there's only one other shareholder that owns the other 78%, yes. um, that might be an indicator that says you really don't have the ability to exert any influence. And that one's not determinative by itself either. Um, you have to look at the totality. You have to look at the totality. Yeah. I know because I've heard that argument a lot um, and I've seen different facts and circumstances that either help to support that argument or don't. Yeah. Um, and then the, the last two are situations that you've actively shown you've, you know, as the investor that you've tried to either receive certain financial information and failed, or you've actively tried to get a board seat and failed. Um, so it shows active attempts to influence and to, um, you know, exert whatever power you should have. The, the oh, right and to. you were rebuffed. You were given the elbow by you your, elbow. by your equity investing. You okay. It. Yeah. Or, so, or you were given the elbow by the company. So yep. you will not have an equity investment. Yep. And, you know, Again, none of these individually um, are determinative uh, or conclusive on their own. So you need to think about all of these factors in totality to try to overcome the presumption. And I'm stressing that because I think it is a hard hurdle to overcome when you're over 20% of the voting shares. Right. Okay. So then looking at the other end of the spectrum, there could be situations where you hold over 50% of the shares, but you're still in equity method because you don't meet the criteria for consolidation. That's right. So you should definitely start thinking through whether or not you have control. Um, but there might be situations where the other investor has substantive participating rights, for mm-hmm. example. Right? So you don't get to a conclusion where you end up consolidating. Certainly there's a very strong presumption at that point that you will be in equity method. Yes, it would be um, hard not to be. Yeah, owed, and, and it's fair to say, right, that yeah. the further are you, the further away your ownership interests are from the twenty percent kind of presumption line, right? Right. The, the harder it is to overcome whatever presumption you're trying to overcome, yes. right? So the fifty-five percent, it's going to be certainly very hard to overcome equity method. But the same kind of goes the other way. Whereas if you're at five percent of the voting shares, it's going to be harder to demonstrate that you have the ability to exercise significant influence. So that's a fair statement. Yep. And then again, that's a good place to give a reminder that this is all talking about corporate. If you were dealing with partnerships, it would be different. That's right. So for for partnerships, and I'm glad you brought it up again, because I don't know if I mentioned this, but when we say virtually no influence, the SEC has been on record saying that the ownership level where they expect to see virtually no influence is three to five percent. That's what made me think of it, the five percent. Exactly. So if you're, you know, above this three to five percent area, you're going to going to be applying the equity method. In a, in a partnership. Likely. Okay. Uh, so I think that's all I have for today. Thanks again for joining me. We're not quite done yet. To continue our new segment on positivity in times of uncertainty, 
I called Matt to ask him this week's silver lining question. How do you plan to celebrate the unofficial start to summer this Memorial Day weekend? And sounds like he has some fun and relaxing plans. I understand that he's going to throw some brisket on the smoker and hang out with the family in the backyard. Similarly, I'm planning to spend some time with my family in the backyard, although perhaps roasting some s'mores instead of eating brisket. For those of you who don't know, I'm a vegetarian. So that does it for this episode. Join me back here this Thursday for part two of our conversation on equity accounting. You don't want to miss it. So that you never miss an episode, subscribe to this series wherever you listen to your podcasts. And to stay up to date on the latest content, let's connect on LinkedIn. For PwC, I'm Heather Horn. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast is brought to you by PwC, all rights reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates and may sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.